Hello, everyone, and welcome to Know the Show, our musical theater podcast where we deep dive into classic musicals one at a time. I am Michael Fling, the Artistic Associate at Goodspeed Musicals, and I'm thrilled to be joined by my blue ribbon steer, Annika Chapin, <laughs> Singer Theater's Director of Artistic Development. Hi, Annika. Hi, Michael. I'm only blue ribbon because you wore your lucky shirt. I told you it was a stupid intro, but I was like, I can't do, I always end up being like the main to like calling you like my other half, which is like great. But in this, the horniest of all musicals, I was like, I don't want yeah. people to get the wrong impression, you know, because everyone thinks I'm obviously straight and in love with you. Um, <laughs> I mean, the rumors have been flying about us for years. Oh, like on Twitter, now X, they won't stop talking about it. They won't stop asking. It's I so know. I didn't want to give father, you know. I know. We're so. the we're the Ariana Grande and Ethan Slater of musical theater podcasts. Oh, we went there. Wow. I mean, yeah. to be fair, Ethan Slater doesn't not look like me. And there's absolutely a world where you could look like your good dear friend, um, close personal friend, Ariana Grande. Okay, there is absolutely not a world in which that is possible. <laughs> but I will say that Ariana Grande and I are Facebook friends. Probably she's probably not even on Facebook. We did 13. I was the assistant director and she was a little tiny baby giga star in the making and with the most crazy set of pipes in the whole wide world. So which actually serves as a perfect transition for you to remind us of the clue about the show that we'll be getting to know this episode because um other clue it shares uh, the composer with 13 the musical so Annika what was the clue uh that about the show that we'd be getting to know well this clue was that the novel on which this is based is was originally called love in black and white and that is a great title for a show that is based on a novella that is based on a photographer um for National Geographic, uh, I think that is what that is referencing. It is the Bridges of Madison County. Yay! Yay! One of my most favorite shows. I love it. And a show we've been talking about doing for a long time, and it just it well precipitately it felt like the right time because Signature is happens to be doing Bridges right now. Yes, right this very minute we are in rehearsals at Signature for our very own production of Bridges of Madison County, directed by Ethan Hurd, who is a brilliant genius person. Um. It is introverse, which means that there's audience seating on both sides, which I love. So you're like right in it. Um, and it is starring the magnificent, gorgeous, wonderful Aaron Davey with a voice like a like a goddess and Mark Evans, the dreamy Mark Evans. So come down to D.C. and see this glorious show. It is hot both on stage and off because D.C. is a swamp, as we talked about in 1776. Well, it's also a summertime musical, like looking at the dates of the state fairs and various things like it absolutely takes place like kind of around well, at least when people will be listening to this episode. It does. I mean, it, we're debuting in August. It's absolutely like an August kind of yes. musical in a lot of ways. It is. It's it's sultry, sultry in mm -hmm. every sense of the word. I think it is without question. I, I I think I already said it, but it's absolutely the horniest musical of all time. And which will probably subsequently lead to this being the horniest episode of this podcast. <laughs> I mean, we've already, we haven't even dived into the show. and We've already joked that like we're an item and talked about Ethan Slater and Ariana Grande, a hot new item. I mean, you know. The controversy. It's everything. a Tennessee Williams play already. We're just... I Sweat have always and, depended upon the kindness of strength. Yeah, just infused with sensuality this whole episode. 
So before we get into it, it has a book by Marsha Norman uh, and music and lyrics by Jason Robert Brown, of course, also composer of 13 and Parade and all, all the things. Our first Jason Robert Brown musical, too, to dive into on this, the 37th show that we have gotten to know. Yes, the first, but not the last. I mean, he is no, a... Definitely not the last. Titan of the American theater, as is Marsha Norman, so... It's true. It's real. So with that, I think it's time for the speed test. Hudson's floor wax doesn't matter. 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 Where I do my best to summarize the plot of Bridges of Madison County in under a minute. And I am going to go ahead and say I think that's possible with this one because there's not a ton of plot. Um, just a whole lot of kissing, a whole lot of rubbing, a whole lot of that's is that <laughs> that's uh that's Festival of Horrors in Texas, isn't it? Anyway, moving on. <laughs> well, you know, that, that's a that's maybe a spiritual antecedent to the show yeah, in some no. ways. No, be. not really, not really. Um can you imagine Kelly O'Hara as made uh not matron Mama Morton, that's Chicago, as um what's oh my god, Mona, Miss Mona. That's oh my god. I would love, I would love. Yeah, okay. honestly, there's nothing that Kelly O'Hara has like proved herself unable to do thus far. So I'm like, she she can believe. Well, I, I yeah, we'll get into my standship of her later because it's the first it's the first time we've really gotten to talk about her, except for the South Pacific episode, I guess. But yeah, that was way back along. That was a OG. It's the first yeah. one. So here first we are. One. Okay, all right. I'm gonna summarize this plot. All right, I'm gonna do a count count count. I'm going to do a countdown involving the actual bridges of Madison County. Oh, fun. Okay. okay. Yeah, but there's six of them, so I'm just going to choose the ones with the funnest names. Ooh, so. Absolutely. Endorsed. Yeah. All right. Hollowell, Cutler Donahue, Hogback, go! Okay, so Francesca, she is originally from Napoli, uh, sings about it a lot. And uh, before the show really starts, like she has married um, Bud, who was an American soldier who was over in Italy. They come to America uh, and basically take up residence on a farm in Iowa. Uh, and they have two kids, uh, Michael and Carolyn, who are kind of bratty and obnoxious, to be honest. Um, and uh, so, but then uh, Robert, who's a photographer for National Geographic, comes to Iowa to photograph the bridges of Madison County, uh, the covered bridges, and stumbles into her driveway when the fam- the rest of the family, husband and kids, have gone off to um, a state fair, which we'll get into that plot hole later. Uh, and uh, then they begin kind of a, you know, romantic affair, not kind of a, a very romantic, horny affair. Uh, and eventually, like over the couple days that they're gone, and then he's going to leave, and she decides not to go with him, basically, and stay with her family. And then people die, and they never actually get to reunite. Yeah, that's a one hundred two. You you got it. And I left out the neighbors, um, and the neighbors who are kind of nosy and want to know what's yeah. going on. But that's essentially the plot. That is essentially the plot, and it's post World War Two. It's in the sixties. That's. 1965 1965 they won't let you forget yeah so there's that element too um yeah that's that's the show it's it's a it's kind of a small scale because it's just in mostly in this one little house and in this you know one little weekend and yet it is the scale of love it is the big has big big feelings big big emotions big big feelings so that brings us to why god why why today where we talk about why the show exists what are the authors trying to communicate and what is the idea that um really is the engine of the of the plot and of the show 
so for me, um, you know, again, I, I feel like we always philosophize about how we answer this question, but I'm going to go ahead and say that um, I think the authors would say that the show is about something different than what I'm going to say based on all the research I've done. Um, I'm going to say that this show is about belonging. And, Interesting. Um, because I think ultimately all of the characters are trying to belong to something, whether that is their family, whether that's their marriage, whether that's to each other, they're searching for their, like where they fit in. Um, and Francesca doesn't fit in um, or has felt like she's lived an entire life uh, since being married, not fitting in and attempting to belong. Um, and Brene Brown would be very proud of me bringing this into it, but like belonging, like fitting in is not belonging, right? Because fitting in, like you're changing yourself to try to belong. Um, and then in Robert, I think she finds a belonging and they, they feel like they belong with each other and uh, discover each other inside of this affair. Um, so that's the thing that I felt was really driving driving the plot and driving the forward action um and between the character the the children and their kind of side story and how they're maturing into their identities and whatnot and then bud trying to fit into this marriage and trying to fit into like you know fitting belonging in fitting fitting in belonging feels to me like what is the central question and even like the neighbors like where do they belong in this community and and whatnot and is it their responsibility to kind of like tattletale and tell and make sure she doesn't have this affair or whatever? I think there are interesting threads in there. So for me, that's the idea that kept kept coming to the surface for me. But Annika, uh, what would you say uh, is, is the idea behind the show? Well, that is a very interesting one. And I, I think we'll probably talk a little bit more about the role that the community plays in the show. And um, yeah, and I think that's a really interesting point about uh, I mean, just belonging and, and loneliness is sort of the flip side of that, not belonging. But um, but for me, this one is actually kind of simple and I, I don't want to sound too simplistic, but like uh, it's about love. I mean, it, it I was going to joke that it's about like the message of the show is basically like if you have the opportunity to have sex with Stephen Pasquale, you probably should. But but also and I, like, you know, and frankly, and whom's among us wouldn't. I you know, mean, who wouldn't with that voice yeah. on like butter. Yeah. But, <laughs> but honestly, like, I think that is, I mean, that's a, that's a joke about the hotness of Stephen Pasquale, but like, I think that the show ultimately that is the takeaway of the show that like when, when there is a love that comes your way, that is so enormous and so life shattering, you have to go with it a little bit which is kind of an amazing message for something that was such a big hit in america the the original source material because it's not a very american idea it's a, it, like america is a little more puritanical and the idea that this is a love story about an extramarital affair um is kind of an interesting thing i think we normally don't really embrace that that narrative as much um but that's that's what i take away from the show i think i think this show is one of the most honest and realistic portraits of all of the complex emotions of being in love of any show and so to me that's that's what keeps drawing me into this show it's just like it is it captures the scale of that as much as the scale of the show itself is actually kind of small it's just as i said like a little weekend a little 
you know, this little moment in time where these two strangers find each other, but like, it feels like you've seen something momentous about what it is to be human and what it is to, to fall in love. And, and I think that that is just so much the heart of this show. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. And I think the authors would absolutely say that part of this is like part of their um, feeling about the show has a lot to do with um like community and and there there is like a community aspect that they absolutely insert into the adaptation that didn't really exist prior so i think you have to consider that on some level but i don't yeah i don't know that i would as much as i say belonging slash fitting in is a part of the thrust like it's not to me because of like a community that you want to be a part of like it doesn't really like that so i i don't know but like i differentiate a little bit but it's interesting because I think you're right is that it's way more about the passion and the romance and, and even you could argue like the lust of it all than it is about like community. Like it's not one of those that I. Yeah. But, you know, but, but I think that that's not, not in there. You know, I think the show has layers that are like, I, I mean, it's funny. Cause I think, I think you're, I totally, I, I took your belonging thing not to mean the necessarily community part. Cause I think to me, the community element of this show is actually one of the less successful moments in it. I agree. Um, but I think the belonging thing that you identify is, is threaded throughout in a much different and much more subtle and interesting way. Um, but um, also there's a lot to say about like trauma, you know, that there's, it's a beautiful portrait of people in many different ways that, mm-hmm. that really just, gets in there because these two central characters are both traumatized in different ways and you know they the level of understanding that people have for that and how they you know how they see each other through that lens is also kind of an interesting part of it so that is to say there's it's a rich text and there's a lot going on so with that Annika why don't you take us back to before and tell us about the origins of the bridges in Madison County we can never go back to before so this is a fascinating one because when I was doing this section, sometimes obviously I, I spotlight the writers and Jason Robert Brown is, um, as I said, like a, a major, major figure in the American theater who is very interesting to talk about. Marsha Norman is another really wonderful person. But I was like, let me just check out the story of the source material here because this is based on a very, very famous book that was turned into a very, very famous movie. And I didn't really know that much about this book uh, before diving into this podcast. And I have to say the story of this book is really, really fascinating. So I'm going to just talk a little bit about the book in this section. And I have every faith that we will be doing another podcast later about another one, another show by both of these writers. So we'll get the chance to to throw them into the spotlight. But um, yeah, The Bridges of Madison County uh, was kind of like, I mean, somebody referred to it as a publishing phenomenon. It was a novel, very, it's a very short novel uh, that came out in 1992. It's technically a novella, they call it, which I don't know if there's a technical thing. It's just a small novel. Um, and it was written by a guy named Robert James Waller Jr. And he, I mean, it's so, it's so interesting because he's, there's so much of himself. I mean, there's so much of Robert in Robert Kincaid. Uh, the character, but also it almost feels like he is a character in in his own novel and the like community. So he was born and raised in Iowa. He had a PhD in business and he taught management and 
economics at the University of Northern Iowa, which is the same college he went to. So it's kind of the quintessential, like, small-town American boy, stayed basically where he grew up, um, got a job at the college he went to. He was teaching, Not he's not really writing. He's writing some essays, but he's not really, like, an artistic person in his own imagination. Except for he does dabble. He's a little bit of a songwriter. He has some, you know, a little bit of this, but not not a ton. He became the dean of the business school at this university. And then he was on leave from his teaching job in the 90s when he was photographing the Mississippi River with a friend of his. And he decided that he was going to photograph the six covered bridges of Madison County, Iowa. And that idea combined with an idea in his head uh, that had happened when, because I said, as I mentioned, he was a songwriter as well. He had written a song a few years ago um, about dreams of a woman called Francesca, who sort of resembled his wife in many ways, but was this person, this kind of dream figure. So those two elements, his project of photographing these bridges and this woman that came to him in his dream um, for the song combined to make the idea for the novel. And then this is kind of the bonkers part of this. So as I said, he had never written fiction before. He had written some essays. He was a professor. But this was the first attempt at writing a story. And he wrote this story in 11 days. 11 days? Seriously? Yeah. 11 days it took him to write this, this novella. And then, of course, like, here's this guy. He's an academic. He's a business guy, management, economics, et cetera. Like, never written a novel before, wrote this novel. So he's like, okay, I'm not going to publish this. I'm just going to like send it to my friends and family because it's my first attempt at this. And then one of his friends happened to know a literary agent and uh, said, can I send this to my friend who's a literary agent? And he said, yeah, sure, you know, fine. So apparently, according to Lore, days later, he received a call from this agent, this literary agent in New York, who began the conversation with Robert, where have you been all my life? Which, you know, who knows if that's true? That seems a little schmaltzy. But, um, but also, like, can I absolutely hear a lit agent in New York being like, I, yeah, I can absolutely hear it. So, yeah, you know, I, I buy it. I know. And also, like... <laughs> Like unmistakably, there was something about this book that just was like wildfire because it was published in 1992. It debuted on the bestseller list. Um, it made it to to number one, and it stayed on the list for three years, and it sold over 60 million copies. I mean, there's like wow. there's a piece in the New York Times I found about um, all of this when it was happening. Like at that point, it hadn't even been. Um, published in paperback and they were talking about like it was 41 printings 2.9 million copies are in print every week 150,000 new copies of the book are sold at bookstores like it is it, it was just like a crazy crazy thing that everybody was reading so it just like took off like like nobody's business um and then this is i think kind of sweet so subsequently um robert james waller jr did he did publish some other things. He wrote another uh, story that was made into another movie because this movie uh, was made in 1995. So that's three years after the the story came out. The film came out with, with Clint Eastwood and Meryl Streep. That was also a big hit. Um, but then the year after this was published, he released an album called The Ballads of Madison County. 
which I find very sweet, which unfortunately was not as well received as, as this book was, but this was kind of like his like rocket ship to the, to the future. I mean, like it just was this crazy, crazy thing where this person who has never done this thing before just takes a crack at it because it just appears in his head and it becomes this, this whole thing. And it was interesting because like, and we'll talk a little bit about this more, but like it was met with sort of like both some, so the reviews were mixed basically because some places were like, this is very effective and, and it's a portrait of two, the, the characters in the book are a little bit older than the characters in the show. So it's kind of lauded for being a portrait of middle-aged people um, find it falling in love, but also some people felt it was like very cheesy and it was like a greeting card and sort of were very sort of dismissive of it because it was a basically a romance novel. So um, it has an interesting reputation. I think anything that is this successful will will have that kind of mix to like sniff, you know, well, it's not that great. But um, this one really, really did find, find a kind of um, both a, a huge success and also a little bit of like skepticism that it should have been that successful. But yeah, that's this 11 days story that popped into his head as he was photographing the Mississippi river and had written the song became a, a juggernaut thing. One of the best-selling books of our century. You know, fame and fortune in 11 days where would we, that we all were so lucky or so I mean, struck with inspiration. Yeah. Yeah, not not a great story to hear if you are someone who has written several books and is like, please, one of these hit. Yeah, one like, of them oh. hit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tough. Yeah, yeah. Tough look yeah. for you. Yeah. Tough look for you. And that will bring us to putting it together. Bit by bit, putting it together. Piece by piece, only way to make a work of art. Where we talk about how the show was literally put together. So Jason Robert Brown and Marsha Norman got to know each other when... Um, Jason Robert Brown scored a play that um, Norman had written uh, that I think ran at Manhattan Theater Club. And um, they then collaborated on a symphonic presentation of the Trumpet of the Swan, which I just think is very interesting, a very starry um, little concert that they did down in D.C. Um, and after that experience, they decided they wanted that they wanted to write a real musical together. Um, and, because that was like really just like for the symphony, a little bit like a Peter and the Wolf type thing. Um, and after having worked on 13 and and also Honeymoon in Vegas, even though it had yet to reach Broadway, and I'm not quite sure where that falls in the trajectory of his, the timeline of his life, um, Jason Robert Brown wanted to do something with much more depth um, and yet also something mainstream. He was really, you know, sick of like not having success on Broadway, essentially. And in this initial conversation uh, about what they should work on, he talks about like La Traviata, which I just thought was interesting. So coincidentally... Um, James Lapine actually got approached um, to make a musical out of Bridges, Madison County, and he turned it down and called Marsha Norman and was like, you should be the one uh, to do this and uh, told and told those people that they should go to her. And so she went to Jason Rob Brown and the, he was like, that doesn't really seem like uh, something I would be interested in. And then he read it and kind of heard her you know, ideas about it. And he was like, OK, yeah, let's 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 do it. Um, and. Uh, Norman was really, really clear that she wanted the adaptation to center on Francesca and um, really chart her journey and choices during the four-day affair with Robert. Uh, Brown suggests actually making the show a chamber piece with only eight voices, that there are only like eight characters in this entire thing, which I think as you know, we talk about the 
the struggle to put community in the show and what that does, I, I think that's an interesting little anecdote that seems to have gotten lost as they as they adapted the show um, further. So um, knowing that uh, it was something, you know, knowing that something that was his more traditional sound and voice wouldn't be quite right for this piece, Brown starts composing the show predominantly on guitar. And I pulled this quote, which I thought was interesting. I felt myself butting up against the corny, corny, the cheesy, the sentimental, but I decided in those moments to push harder through it, not to be cynical about love or family, but to sing about them with uh, with ecstatic truth, uh, which I thought was interesting. And um, so around this time, they kind of get their treatment settled on what they on how they want to approach the story and centering Francesca and all that and um, send it to Kelly O'Hara who was like, oh my gosh, this sounds great. And so she joins the project. Um, and then she calls Bartlett Shear, who she had done um, South Pacific with on Broadway, um, I guess at the time, a few years um, prior. And they announced an initial reading for December of 2011 uh, that I don't know much about that uh, reading, um, but then they have a subsequent reading um, the year later. And, but at this first, at this first reading, um, I guess Brown had really approached the entire score with this like guitar sensibility and the earthy um, kind of uh, Joni Mitchell sound that he found with some of the other characters and had done that for Francesca as well. And while Kelly O'Hara loved it, um, she mentioned that it really wasn't her comfort zone vocally, uh, which is, you know, she at that point had done quite a bit on Broadway between uh, Light and Piazza and Sweet Smell of Success, which everybody forgets about, but also like Pajama Game and South Pacific, which are in a much more like alto um, alto kind of tone for her. And she was like, actually, I'm really much more comfortable being like a lyric soprano. Um, and so Brown took that information away. And then at the next reading came back with a much more classical lyrical sound for Francesca, uh, which was exemplified in To Build a Home, which he wrote for Kelly O'Hara. And she says is like the best song she's ever sung. Like the most at home she feels vocally is singing To Build a Home. And it just kind of fell out of her mouth. There's a great clip that was circulating on social media about that recently. So they did an out-of-town tryout at the Williamstown Theater Festival in the Berkshires. Um, and Stephen Pasquale hops on board as Robert. And Kelly O'Hara is obviously supposed to be Francesca, um, but she actually withdraws from the production due to her second pregnancy. And Elena Shadow, um, a wonderfully talented, wonderful, 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 talented, just, and good, kind person um, who uh, I just adore, um, plays Francesca for this step. And if you go back and look at some of the, like, the online comments at the time, some people, uh, you know, like Stan Elena Shadow as Francesca, which I, I just think is a really interesting kind of thing since it was built for Kelly. Um, and she obviously is so wonderful and so luminous, but it's interesting what those two different wonderful people bring to the roles. Um, so there's not, I couldn't find a ton of information on what the show really was like at Williamstown, um, but there are reports basically that the show ran around three hours um, and they began gutting the show right away and making trims in their brief, brief run at Williamstown. So they eventually took out about 11 to 13 minutes of the show while at Williamstown. Um, and then it's announced that it's going to go to Broadway and obviously it does. Um, and weeks in, and they make some casting changes in between there, but, um, Kelly O'Hara rejoins as Francesca, um, Steve Pasquale is still in as Robert. And, um, you know, there's not a ton that I could find about what that process was like. Um, but if we look at the early, again, this is like one of the few times that we're able to really look at like the Broadway world boards for, uh, you know, to be, uh, firsthand accounts. Uh, primary sources uh, in what happened. Um, but there was a song in Act Two called uh, He Forgave Me, 
uh, for Chiara, who I think Chiara is how you say it, um, uh, Francesca's sister, which they eventually cut. That was an act two uh, that happened after um, One Second and a Million Miles. And they eventually take that out of the show. And that seems to be, at least per the song list, the most substantive change they make during previews. So it opens on Broadway and gets like mediocre to not great reviews. Um, it doesn't sell incredibly well. Uh, it opens kind of in the dead of winter, uh, which was, you know, I mean, it's a choice. It's something that happens. Shows open then. Um, but it never really seems to find an audience and only runs for about 100 performances. It doesn't do well. It's not nominated for Best Musical. Uh, it's nominated and wins um, for Best Original Score and Best Orchestrations. But it doesn't, it like makes it a little bit past Tony nominations and then announces closing and closes before the Tonys that year. Um and didn't didn't really catch on. And I think we'll get in in other segments, we'll get into why that might be or the various like troubles with the show. But um, yeah, with a starry cast and a big name director like Bart and Jason and all these people, I think it's it's definitely in the shows that we've looked at so far, the objectively least successful in terms of Broadway run. Um, I think uh, it's fair to say Um but yeah, it's kind of it's an odd thing because it didn't. It definitely did have fans. It it did have it and does now. I think it is now looked at very differently than it was when it first came out. But um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting. It, it definitely seems to me to be one of those shows. I mean, I was one of those fans. I went to see this several times, and it's one of the few shows that I I find myself wishing sometimes it were still running because I just crave it in a way. Like I think the sort of I mean, I would just go and cathartically cry through the whole thing. Um, and I, I, I miss that, you know, I feel like that's a, that's a, a beautiful thing to be able to experience. Um, but I do find that now, even though, yes, it was not a hit and it is appalling that it was not nominated for best musical. I mean, I'm angry afresh about that, but, um, I think it has definitely gained in people's respect after after it closed like i think for people who are real musical fans and and know and love musicals this show it has loomed much larger than its original run would have suggested it it does and you know that's not a bad place to be because there are many shows in the history of musicals that frankly just don't do all that well um when they first come out and then find their place in the canon uh even aside from that, and and it's being done regionally a fair amount. I mean, ours is just one of a few productions that have happened. And I think there is that sense of like, there is something really beautiful and glorious about this show that maybe was not highlighted or not not kind of shown off in the way that it, it ideally in that original production, as much as there were like amazing parts of that production. And, and also like, and we'll talk about this, but there is, I think there is, both a a plus side and a downside to being adapted from something that is that has this kind of reputation of being such a success um so yeah it's a it's kind of a weird one because when i hear you say that about like how badly it did i'm like oh yeah i, I guess it did do badly on broadway but cuz now i i everybody i know really has a soft spot for it well, and i know I, a lot of people who saw it multiple times yeah i mean and it's still i mean it won two tonys right like i think it is that weird like in some ways, like it had nothing to gain from winning a Tony for Jason for a score or orchestration, but yet the community or the voters at large understood that like it had something of merit there. 
but it, it wasn't nominated for best meme. It's a very odd like to not be nominated for. I, I actually I would be curious if we have any like super Tony like trivia people. Has there ever been a show that won best original score and wasn't nominated for best musical? I think there has been. I don't know what it is. But <laughs> I, saying, I don't know what it is. Like, but like to win best original score and yet not even be nominated for best musical, that's weird. If we had producers and researchers, um, I'd be like, we'll go to commercial and then when we come back, we'll have the answer. Maybe I'll look at it while you do the song analysis or something. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so now I'm like trying to fervently Google to see if I can find. <laughs> yeah, it really like quick. What, how interesting. Anyway, so but uh, so we'll we'll do some research on that, and uh, and while we do that, Annika, why don't you take us into the words and show us what's inside? Wondering. What's inside? Everyone wants to know what's inside. So pretty much from the moment we decided we were going to do the Bridges of Madison County as the show for this episode, I knew which song I was going to do for the song analysis, which is fairly rare for me and even rarer in a score where I love so many of the songs, like any one of the songs in the score would have been a joy to dive into. But I knew I was going to do Wondering. And that is partially that is for a lot of reasons. I mean, it's it's not the showiest number in the score. It's not the most romantic. It's not the most emotional. It's not the one that I would think most people like go to to listen to on repeat of the score. It's, it's a very interesting sort of quiet, contained character portrait. Um, but really what I love about this song is that it does something really beautiful for this character and you know there's a standard in musical theater that a song has to change something over the course of the song the character has to change what is the dynamics between them has to change the plot has to have moved forward there has to be something that has really moved forward over the course of that song and so in this song what we have is a really really good portrait of a character who has changed a lot but it's not big and showy. It is so subtle the way this is done. And I love it even more because there is one word that changes that shows us the difference between Robert at the beginning of the song and Robert at the end of the song. And it's a little word and it means so much for this character and what has happened over the course of this not very long song. So let's dive in. And this is Stephen Pasquale singing the song. So the setup for this song is that Robert has had dinner with Francesca. They've just met each other, basically. They've had this beautiful dinner that she's cooked for him. And they've connected a little bit, but there's no guarantee that they anything more than that is really going to happen. And so this is when he's going home. And I love that this music at the beginning kind of feels like he's driving it. And along a quiet road, you can kind of feel that repetitive, almost like there's like street lights or something like that. It's just, it feels like a long road that's nobody else is on. Um, it feels a little bit like he's breathing in and out with those strings. It feels like someone in a quiet moment thinking. Um, and it feels like it's a little bit of an indication of what Robert's life is like most of the time. Um, 
so we we know that he's this is an interior song he's thinking about what's going on he's talking to himself um it, and we get this set up music to to get, bring us there. It's a little tiny bit melancholy, but it's really mostly just contained. That's what it feels like. It feels a little bit hemmed in. It's not going beyond a few notes back and forth. And of course, we have the guitar, which was an instrument introduced as something Robert doesn't play, but does bring with him. That's kind of something that is his uh, more associated with him. A little twinge, a little shock, a little whisper at the bottom of your memory. A sudden wind, a gentle knock, and then a rustle in the leaves. You hold your breath, you check the lock, you reassure yourself there's nothing at the window. So these lyrics are so interesting because they're not about any of the things we've seen him do. We get these little fragmented pieces, not full sentences, with hi which highlight how much this feels like something he is really thinking to himself. You know, they're not fully formed. It's not something he's presenting to anyone else. It's just like thoughts kind of going past his mind. Um, and they're sort of impressionistic a little bit. And they're giving the impression of being inside somewhere, sort of in inside a cabin, maybe alone, with this unsettling feeling that something is out there. And it's such an interesting image for Robert to use. It's certainly not what we would, we would expect. Um, but it gets across beautifully that sense that something is changing for him and also that it's not necessarily a comfortable feeling. He has been very careful to make sure his life is solitary. And we've just heard in a, Another Life, which is the song right before this, that he keeps himself separate, that his ex-wife always felt like there was part of him that was not accessible. Um, and now this image is of being unsettled, almost under attack. So he's kind of imagining himself as this uh, cabin in the woods, you know, this protected bubble, this place that now suddenly he's feeling like something's out there and, it, and it's not really good. Um, and we know he's thinking about himself, but he's still maintaining the second person. He's saying you which is another subtle illustration of how far he keeps himself from his own feelings, right? He can't even admit this is about him. It's a person he's talking to, which sets up a duality that is going to continue through this song. There's a sense that there is the Robert that knows that his life has to be sort of protected and contained and shouldn't connect to anybody and just go, you know, from town to town and never get his foot stuck in the door. Um, but there's another Robert that's going to emerge over this song. And so the fact that he's singing to you is interesting. It's like there's there's another part of himself that he doesn't really, he, he has to sort of talk to. They're not united. He's not a really united um, one character here. And I also think it's really interesting that these musical phrases are all rising, but then he keeps pulling it back to the original note. Um, you check the lock, it goes up. He doesn't want to go there musically. He's just not ready to let it go to rise up to where it's it wants to be but we will see in the song he's it's it's gonna happen but you're wandering you're wandering you're wandering what that was nothing's gonna happen Nothing's gonna happen. 
But then this breaks through this beautiful lyrical phrase, you're wondering, you're wondering. It's very different from these little sort of constrained phrases from this earlier verse. He can't help but let in this thought, just as he can't help but wonder what it might be to let that in, right? He's he's unsettled by this thing outside, but at the same time, he's wondering what is outside? What is that thing? Um, and Jason Robert Brown has done something very smart here in the orchestrations. Not only does the music sound different here, more lyrical and emotional um, than the first verse, but a cello has started to play. And that's the instrument that he has associated with Francesca already in the score. Um, so even though Robert isn't saying he's wondering about her, she has entered the song musically via the orchestrations. We know that he is singing about her. And then we have this uh, two, a repeated key phrase, nothing's gonna happen, which pulls back from that big note of wondering. You know, he's almost sounds like he's reminding himself he's keeping everything contained and then he's reassuring himself. It's twice like it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. You turn a key, you flip a switch, you settle back into the blissful unfamiliar. You close your eyes, but there's an itch, a little hurt your heart retreats. But you ignore the tiny twitch, pretend the feeling will be gone before the morning. But you're wondering, you're wondering, you're wondering where you are. Nothing's gonna happen, nothing's gonna happen. So now we need another verse of these phrases, and now we've moved into the house or into the structure, and it feels more like Robert's real life. It's a little more specific, turning the key, switching the lights on, in another anonymous motel, which is where he's setting, heading. He's heading to a, a motel in town, um, a motel room, you know, and he, which he describes as the blissful unfamiliar. Um which is a great phrase because we know that he's a person who travels. He's a photographer. There is great comfort for him, I think, in the idea that he is—he doesn't really have a home. He's always traveling around. So everything is unfamiliar all the time, but there's great comfort in that. So it's a little bit of a flip on what you'd, you would imagine, which is a blissful familiar. But for him, not ever settling down is what is comfortable. And then, of course, we have, you know, there's a little twitch in his heart that he's pushing away. And now, instead of wondering what that was, he's wondering where he is. So just as the verse has gotten a little closer to being about his circumstance, so has this chorus. He's wondering where he is, which for a perpetual nomad could be dangerous. He's starting to be more aware of his surroundings. Um, the blissful familiar, unfamiliar is under threat. But once again, he reassures himself with this doubled contained phrase, nothing's going to happen. But the second one, he can't quite pull down and back to his normal setting in the way that he could before. But wouldn't it be fine to share the weather in her eyes, her hair, her footsteps as she climbs the stair, the shadow in her light. And then we get this very different, huge thing that's just kind of bursts forth from him. This It's so, like, his, his voice just is allowed to kind of break free to imagine all of these beautiful images of her, which are still fragments, but such beautiful fragments. We get the sense that he has been struck by seeing all of these pieces of her already. 
And part of him already knows he wants more. You know, it, it just feels like this is exciting to him in a way that those early moments of like something's outside is is a very different feeling. This is this is his heart running free a little bit, and we can feel it in this music so clearly. And I love that he includes here the shadow in her light is the last one, because I think one of the things that is true about Robert is that he really understands where Francesca is coming from and the darkness of what was left behind in Napoli, that she is someone who has experienced this kind of trauma and and he is willing to go there with her in a way that it doesn't feel like anybody in her life understands what that is. But everything you know is true and everything you That makes you you collides against the night, and nothing's black and white. So here we're still in that beautiful emotional place, but he's fighting it. And I love that these lyrics are a little ambiguous. Is everything you know is true, everything you want to do, everything that makes you you, the part of him that stays isolated and contained, that has a plan to keep moving and never get attached? Or is it this emotional core of him that clearly wants this connection with Francesca? The lyrics alone would make me think it's the first, but their placement on this music makes me feel it might be the second. And I think that confusion is good. He's confused. These two factions, these two sides of himself, as he said, are colliding. There's there's something that is very kind of upsetting in this in this confusion for him. It, he's not able to be the Robert that he has been successfully for many years, who doesn't get attached, who, who has a, a really good working system. Um, this is starting to break free. He cannot control and contain it um, in the same way he did. And then this last line here, which pulls back to that contained place, because he is still like controlling this a little bit it shows that he is shifting nothing's black and white it's so different he's starting to allow for a middle zone which is a big deal for the man who started the song by imagining that his like sanctuary was being attacked right it was sort of like i am inside something is outside this is scary and unsettling there is a isolation there is a place you know there is protection and then there's something that is scary and out there now he's like nothing's black and white you know this the the boundaries he has drawn for himself are starting to fade he's starting to basically bargain with himself right like maybe there's something in the middle right because that, that's usually what you say nothing's black and white there's something you know we can figure it out like there's something here so he's he's not doing so well to keep on the path to avoid entanglements
beautiful. So now we get a return of your wondering, but that feels so different from the earlier versions. It's as though the part of him that wants to wonder, wants to imagine being with her has been freed. It's just running wild and joy. I mean, it just feels like he's running in a flower field full of sunshine. Like it's so beautiful and happy and glorious. Like you can tell that he just imagining this feeling is just joyous to him. And so he cannot contain it like he could at the beginning of the song. And you get that big note almost breaking out of the verse, right? And the orchestrations have this climbing joy. They're building. Um, and now he's not wondering what that was. He's wondering what to do. It's not a question anymore. He knows exactly what's happening with him. He just doesn't know what to do about it anymore. Um you know, he's not sure what the next course of action is. And then we get this wonderful thing where he like, he manages to pull himself down from those heady heights. Uh, but then here's how we know a thousand percent that he has changed. He's, it's back to that original music. So we know that he's back where he started sort of to some degree, but now instead of comforting himself with saying nothing's going to happen twice, the last one changes going to gonna to has to nothing has to happen it's a very small lyrical change that speaks volumes going to means that there's nothing there it's not even going to start right it's not going to happen fine um has to means that he knows it's probably going to happen but that it's not written in stone yet he isn't this isolated protected man worrying that something might invade his solitude and safety as he was at the beginning. Now he cannot pretend to himself that he isn't completely struck by Francesca, that she's gotten in there, that he really like wants to do what he's imagining this being, seeing her in all these different lights and sharing in her life in this way. But the Robert at the end of the song is open, but that contained music has returned because he's rationalizing with himself. Just because he wants to be with her doesn't mean he has to act on it. Um, it's a very, very different thing because he's, we know that he, he's a goner basically, right? If he doesn't act on it, it's because he's managed to convince himself that the stakes are too high. It's not because at the beginning of the song, as he thought, maybe there's nothing there. He knows there's something there. And I love that even though the song ends with the same contained music from the top, before it goes there, there's this little phrase on the cello, Francesca's instrument, like a little question mark. It's a little rising question. Um, so it feels like, you know, when when he says nothing has to happen, there's like this little cello kind of like, mm, really? And then at the end, we get a kind of strumming on the guitar and the and the strum on the guitar, this this chord on the guitar is a very just happy chord. And we just get a sense that that's almost the answer. Like, you know what? These two instruments that represent these two people are telling us that something is indeed going to happen. Also, because frankly, if he manages to convince himself not to do anything, then the show would end and that would be sad. Um, but we, we've we gotten such a beautiful portrait of Robert over the course of the song and how he... it is inside his head, inside his own head, in, inside his own heart. And, you know, he's not a character who lets people in easily. We know that. We've had other people say that. Um, but now we've seen what that is. He's not super in touch with his own feelings. Um, 
because he protects himself very carefully and he protected himself very carefully, but he cannot protect himself from what he feels for Francesca. So um, something's going to happen and we just know it because of this beautiful, beautiful song. And that will bring us to one of our favorite segments. How do you solve a problem like Maria? How do you solve a problem like Maria? Where we talk about some of the issues with the show, both internally and externally. So as we alluded to um, in before we before we dove into the song, it was not a commercial hit on Broadway. And definitely the shortest run of any show that we profiled um, outside of maybe that like Little Shop revival. But I think it's fair to say that Little Shop was a big fat hit off Broadway and then <laughs> still like in its off Broadway capacity now. So different. But um I really want to, I want to talk about why that is. So I, I don't know the show as well as you. I did, I did not see the original production. So I read the licensing script, um, which, and, you know, listened to the album, which of course has the incredible, incredible Kelly O'Hara and Stephen Pasquale, just like, you know, I, I could bathe in their voices. I, I, I not enough yeah. good things to say about either, both of them, just incredible. Um, and so I, you know, I do find like, so as we talked about like the art of adaptation and whatnot, I don't know the original source material. I've not seen the movie. Um, and for me, I've never thought of it as a romance novel, but I think that's probably generational because like when I first think of Bridges of Madison County, one, I know it was a book, but I don't think of it as like a tawdry, like paperback, you see it in a gas station type book. Um, and then I think of it as a movie with Clint Eastwood and Meryl Streep that I'm like, well, those are two like, you know, Academy Award winners. Like she was nominated for an Oscar. Like, so I don't, I don't approach it with, I think the approach that many people do. So all those things aside, I don't know the story really. So I don't know what's different story wise with the musical than other iterations of the story. Um, but there are peculiar, like the whole community aspect that they bring into it, that I, I know that they were very intentional and said that they wanted to paint the picture of the other people around these two characters. I find that to be the most challenging part of the musical um, person in a lot of ways. I, I the particularly Bud and and kind of his like it, it. I think there are are problems that that introduces. Because it doesn't, for me, it doesn't allow me to just completely go on the journey of they have this connection and this thing. Like, it's suddenly, like, I'm always thinking about the consequences for her, like, straight up. And I don't know if that is, like, the the consequences of getting caught, I guess I should say. And that she has something to lose here in terms of family and children. And that's tough. And that it just, it brings up a lot of you know, internal conflict and whatnot as you're, as you're watching it. It's, it's, but again, if Stephen Pasquale is singing like that to you and is there and half naked, like, you know, who's going to say no, but uh, no comment the, or no additional commentary on that. Um, so I guess Annika, like what, how did you feel about the original production? It's at a, its version of adaptation and subsequently like how the show has grown in years since. Yeah, well, it's so interesting. And I've thought about this a lot because, as I said, this is a show I've really loved. And it is a show that I have. I mean, we always joke, we have notes. Yeah, um, notes. We have notes. But uh, I have very specific notes on this one. And some of which I think they've actually addressed subsequent to that initial production. So, um, as you mentioned, like there, there was a real intention with that 
first production of having this kind of like omnipresent community. So there's the song Never You're Never Alone, which is sort of about like, you know, how this community will step in for you and give you a helping hand when you need it. But like also that's, you know, it's kind of a little bit sinister, that song, because the idea is too that like there's always somebody watching you and like everything you do, your behavior is sort of being um watched, watched in this very yeah. t- in this very t- tiny town, watched and judged. Um and the ensemble was sort of there was a fairly large ensemble considering the there's not that many characters in it aside from these like you know main duo and then these neighbors and the the family but um they were sort of like always there um watching and sitting on the side and everything and i just i don't think that really was very effective because the show within the show you never really actually see any of con- any of those consequences um you know the one people the one person that we really see who does know what's going on is um oh my god i can't remember her name marge marge, marge yeah. yeah um and and she ends up being very sort of accepting of this and and helping out when you know it's it's possible that francesca could potentially like you know give up the whole thing give up the game um so so i felt like that was sort of like something they set up but that they never actually uh paid off really in any in any way because it's it is such an internal story um that i think you could you could get that sense that francesca feels the the weight of this affair she's about to embark on without necessarily underlining the idea that like oh it's the community that she's going to watch because as you said too she doesn't really belong in this community so um it also doesn't i i wouldn't really buy necessarily that she feels that kind of pressure you know um and the other part of it is that i think you know bud is not presented as the most like her as you said like the family kind of reads as a little bit annoying and bud it's evident that she and bud don't really have much of a loving relationship as much as you get a sense that bud really does care for her but doesn't know how to express it um but i think the other part of it that was not quite uh in the right place for me about that production was that they you know they cast the very talented uh Derek Klena as as Michael the son and and you know I I mean don't get me started on why Derek Klena keeps being cast as a child he's was was a full-grown man a favorite topic of yours <laughs> I know I don't know why it's always him too it's like it's like oh, haven't we established this this is not this is not a child this is Didn't a man. we talk about this in another episode too or I think we did happened I don't know what show it was what was Derek Klena in doesn't matter we've talked about this before but we have or we've talked about it as friends but yes continue yes yeah but so in this case the problem with that is I think you have to feel the I think you have to feel the vulnerability of Michael um and and the vulnerability of his relationship with Bud specifically and that if they are left alone that it will combust in ways that are really really damaging and that Michael might run away that he might go down a really awful path and so if you don't feel that Michael is vulnerable in a way that really requires Francesca to be there to, to make his life, to, to protect that, to be, to be between them, to make sure that, that he's protected from like the miscommunication, you know, cause he's a teenager and he's like, he and his father are not getting along. 
then then the decision she makes in that moment not to go with but with uh, robert rather doesn't feel as honest it feels a little bit like well you just had the most amazing weekend of your life with this amazing photographer who totally understands and gets you and you have this annoying family with this like fully grown adult son <laughs> who's doing fine like it looks like i mean if you have someone there who feels like they are grown basically um who are that they are not a kid in many ways then then it becomes a different thing because like as much as everybody always needs their mother to some degree like there's a difference between like a grown older teenager who is kind of ready to go off and make his own mistakes and and a kid who is still at a place where he is very capable of ruining his own life in some ways if left there so so those are the kind of two major things that i was like adjust this i mean i also like the thing that always kind of gets me about the show where i'm like and i don't even know i think in the book this is different because i think they've i think he sort of knew that this was a question which is sort of like okay fine like you you she makes this decision to stay with her family to be there for michael to make sure that they they can grow up to become like functional adults um to prevent bud and michael from killing each other basically you know but what happens when they do grow up and and you have this whole montage of like Michael and Carolyn going off and becoming doctors and getting married and like having the functional, healthy lives that Francesca has kind of sacrificed her happiness with Robert to have. So why doesn't she then like skedaddle, you know, like when she's at home with Bud having this sort of like not very satisfying marriage, like for years and years and years and you know there's that heartbreaking scene where like robert's waiting by the phone and is finally like okay she's never going to call me it's like i still don't think the show and so, so anyway that is to say like in the published script of what they license now they've downplayed the community element and i think they know that that part just doesn't really work dramaturgically in the show super effectively um so that kind of has been taken out of the script which i think is a good call um but I still always find myself just wondering like, well, what is preventing her from like, I, I I really understand that she doesn't go with Robert because of her kids, but I just don't see what prevents her from going from, from going after him when she can leave with well, relatively little consequence. So I mean, Bud gets sick. I mean, there's like, it, you know, it would look pretty shitty and that montage so I guess the only thing I challenge on all that is I do yeah. feel like it is while we are watching all of that happen, it does feel like a subtextual need. Um, mm-hmm. Like or doesn't I wish it? I, and this is like horrible, horrible note probably, but I'm like I just would like for her to say I can't leave. Like I don't know what's going to happen to my son if I leave. Like there's uh-huh. never that. Like I'm like I, it to me is like way too reading between the lines. Like it like reading it i'm like god this family sucks like get the (laughs) fuck out like i know that's not the realities of life and family and especially being a parent and and all things so like but i just was like yeah what is keeping you here god it seems like this is shit like just get out like he's 16 she's 14 or whatever they'll get they'll be fine like you know when when yeah but i take your point when you say all that i'm like oh okay makes sense but i wish that that were a little more yeah. illustrated in either it, a song that she sings or a, di- a line of dialogue she says. I don't think she really ever says that to Robert. Like, if there no. was ever any kind of anything, I would 
like in some ways like I reading it I was almost like I wish the kids like didn't I almost wish that the show was like Bud and the kids like didn't exist until they come bursting in to the house post state fair interesting only because only because I was like oh suddenly it becomes like yeah I have a family I have all these things like I can't just right now, in some ways, that makes it may make them even less likable and even more terrible. <laughs> and like, <laughs> it might come like out, who are these people? Just leave them. The problem. Like, just leave them. Who cares? Yeah. But there is like, there's something about that that I was like, it does feel like a you know window break moment when they like come crashing in through the back door and they're like, I went yeah. to my room and all the like things and I was like, oh my god, because it just it it it's tough because like we get that yeah. they are like there's tension that things aren't really vibing between her and, but like, so it's, it's, it's challenging. Cause it is like, yeah. it's set up that she knows her kids very well. And that is clear. Like in the phone conversation, she's predicting mm-hmm. what they're saying and the challenge. So there are, there are parts of that, that like, you know, I just, it, it it's a struggle. It, it was a struggle to like spend as much time with bud as we did for me. Like, yeah, th- it's a challenge. It's a challenge. That's that's not an uncommon um I've heard that before from people because I think you know it is an interesting choice like there I feel like there's other ways you could go with that family when they come in and sort of like you know make it clear that she is like if you saw glimmers of her getting some of the stuff that she doesn't seem to get from them which is like like a true appreciation of who she is and what she does for them which it doesn't feel like at all it feels like the opposite right that they come in and it's like it's like they, where's dinner and you know it's not like sucking. all the annoying right. things like, all, right. right they go on that awful trip to get ice cream and everything is terrible you know and so it's an interesting like contrasting that with like the magic of what she's just had with robert is is bold um and interesting and i i i think you're right that there's potentially like a piece missing from why she makes that choice to stay because i feel like later there's a line robert has a line in the letter i think where he's like i i know why you left because your family needed you but like, yes yes he does say that he yeah and it that. but it, but it does feel like that line feels like it's addressing someone's note where it's like why does she stay you know well and i think um, she does like she might say to him at some point i think she says something to the effect of like, yeah, I love my family. Like, I love my kids. There may be something, but it doesn't yeah. feel like it illustrates the central conflict to me. It feels like almost a like, oh, yeah. yeah, and. And as opposed to like a clear. So maybe it's a matter of direction and just like really bracketing that and making sure that that's. Yeah, because you know, I will say um, in the original production, I remember feeling that very clearly um, that when Bud pushes Michael against the car, it's like a it's something new and it's something kind of frightening about like, mm-hmm. Oh God, there's like, this has escalated to a point where they, you know, this is going to go to a place of physical abuse or like they, they are not able to get along with each other in a healthy way. Um, and that she see in that moment kind of crystallizes everything for her. I remember being just kind of feeling that. Um, but yeah, but then I'm not sure. I mean, and I think this is also like, I think this is a sort of downside of them being slightly younger is because it does feel like there's lots of life for them still to lead, even after mm-hmm. the kids are grown. Whereas I think in the book, as I, I haven't read the book, but I remember reading that there's, there is something about like, she does actually try to get in touch with him and doesn't, can't find his contact information or just can't, can't get to him. Um, and also they're older. So it's a little bit like there isn't this like huge span of time that they have um, to not be with each other. Um 
And I think they also like, I remember hearing when the show was uh, in rehearsals that they were having a bit of a problem because there was like his song at the end, it all fades away is so amazing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It was a little bit like if he is not really the protagonist, because she is the protagonist, how do you, how do you give her something that feels like the equivalent of this like glorious you know, everything in my life has melted away for this, like for the four days in your arms was just like, I mean, it gives me chills to even say it, but like, you know, how they, I think they were having trouble figuring out what to give her that felt like it wasn't just, you know, uh, like less that basically, how do you not like end the show right in that moment? And they gave her like a song that basically does say like, you know, whatever choices you make, um, she loved like and and yeah. I loved you know which I you know and, I thought was a nice so, place to yeah I think it is I think it is and I think it does kind of I think it attempts to answer that question a little bit which is sort of like you make your choices and like even if you never go back to that like just having had that like magical thing um is kind of enough um I mean she could have had many more years of magical thing I think but you know whatever yeah exactly exactly what else also she does say so the line just to you know as if we're sitting at the table doing table work she says to him no i don't want to leave without seeing them i'm afraid if i did the guilt of knowing how i had hurt them would turn me into someone you wouldn't love at all so that's all that she really but again that doesn't imply that she's going to it it's like no i just have to see them and say goodbye and then it's going to be fine but then like the whole six o'clock of it all like I'm like, when they burst in the house and they're going to do all these things, I'm like, she's not making that six o'clock. That's not happening. There's no way. Like, and so there, in some ways it feels like a, I guess, a fait accompli, perhaps. It just feels like, oh yeah, well, this is not going to happen. And which is tough. And I do, I have to say, I do like the theatricality of the moment that she's going to like run to him and, oh yeah, you know, and but then it like didn't happen. And like, I I totally buy into that, like what a I'm yeah. sure, wonderful moment to like witness and um but I yeah so I struggle yeah. I struggle because I feel like because we have a relationship with the family or we know anything about them when we spend time with them it does make us like question the relationship the whole time yeah in a way that I'm in some ways like I don't think is helpful to the in some yeah. ways. I, it's not and- to say that it shouldn't be I just it's it's about how do you negotiate that in a way that doesn't make anyone feel like a villain because i don't think anyone is meant to feel like no no you know and that's not yeah i don't think that's helpful yeah and you do feel bad for bud who like is clearly not the right person for her but kind of wishes in moments that he were the person you know like right but as as annoying as he is in other most but i i had the debate with myself at one point as to whether the show should just end when she has that heartbreaking line about like that was a man you know, who came, I gave him directions. Yes. I because, think I, I agree with you completely. Like maybe that's yeah. where it should just stop. Like, right. Because it kind of feels like if the choice of the show is like, is she going to go with him or not? Everything after her making that choice. And that line is so clearly her kind of saying like, I, that is, I'm not, I'm staying yeah. here. This is who I am. That like, that's kind of the end. It's like, she made the choice, you know, and everything after that is explaining away almost an epilogue a right. little bit yes yep yeah in a way that, so, like, obviously you then wouldn't have it all fades away you'd like i know you know, and you know what sucks. honestly it's like uh, we need that so i'm fine with it but 
But um, it does feel like that's like in some ways like that line and then like, you know, low cello mm, could be in the yeah. show. <laughs> it just cry. Even, yeah, I just feel like, just oh my cry God. cry all over the seats. It was the real, that's but you I'm can't doing. talk about it ever. Like, you should get talking about it. It was so real. <laughs> oh my God. Oh, get back naked yeah. again in the bed. Um, so yeah. also let's talk about the like horny double entendre between like when he gets the coffee in the morning and the cream and all that stuff. I'm like, oh my God, these teenagers out here with this, like, I can't, I'm dead. I mean, it is a, is a sexy, sexy show. I have an issue and this may just be some like editing mistakes and things. Are they supposed to be at the Iowa state fair or are they supposed to be at the Indiana state fair? Because they taught one the iowa state fair very famously happens in des moines and she straight up goes to des moines for a day in town with him and shopping and all that stuff so and i think they reference in the script that they're at the like the stage directions say like the iowa state fair or like the state fair song or whatever is called the iowa state fair but they talk about going to indianapolis so they have to be in indiana and it's like an I mean, eight-hour drive. So I think it's just an editing mistake. But also, like, did no one know? Did no one anywhere say this doesn't make sense? Like, clean this oh, up. Oh, that's very interesting. Like, just clean it up. It's they're at the Indiana State Fair. They're not at the Iowa State Fair. Yeah, have, you're right. I have a problem with that because, like, it is like setting up a like the logistics of the whole thing. I'm like, I this matters. Like, where <laughs> are they? How far away are they? She wouldn't have gone to Des Moines if if they're at the Iowa State Fair. But they say they're in Indianapolis. So I think yeah. it's fine. It's that's a totally like annoying like me. I'm just like, come I, on, clean it up. Clean it up, Marcia. Clean it up, Jason. Like, get it together. That is fascinating. I will look at that. I never noticed that. Although now I love the version of the show where like they are going to the Iowa State Fair and it's in Des Moines and they're just like it cuts to the truck and the truck is going like two miles an hour. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, they're Literally. just like swatting the prize steer to go faster it's like come on like it's it's in the eight hours and all the thing i'm like and also how foolish of her to go to des moines for a day of shopping if that's they're not at the iowa state yeah. fair they're absolutely at the indiana state fair which is allegedly nationals oh, I, yeah okay um but anyhow that's that's my small plot that's a good that is a good dramaturgical note yeah just like what's going on here what's happening um, can we also talk about the other thing that you brought up in that question about sort of the reputation of the show? And, yeah, and I mean, sort of like yeah, let's success. talk about it because like it is it is tough that like it is a title that is a known quantity in some ways, or at least has title recognition. But what does that recognition mean? Yeah, I think this one is very very interesting because I think what ha- happened with this show is that there was an assumption that because it was such a huge hit, there would be tons of people who wanted to see it. But I think what was equally present is that for a lot of people, this book exists in a very specific niche, which is like, um, like what you said, I mean, I think what you said about like, oh, this isn't like sold at this gas station is really interesting. Cause I think also like anything that qualifies as a romance novel, which I think this, this novella sort of does, um, is, is categorized as that it's like a sort of bodice ripper, like schlocky thing. But also, like, even if you don't have that perception, which which I don't think is true, and we can get into that, like, whole thing about how romance no- novels are its own genre, and et cetera. But, like, or the other part of it is, I think, like, you know, this the reputation of this show is, like, like everybody's mom read it at their book club. You know, that this mm-hmm. was, like, a book club book that Midwestern ladies loved. Um, and I think part of the problem was that, that a lot of people did not want that. 
you know, that it felt very much like, oh, you're making a musical of the Bridges of Madison County. That is going to be a hallmark cheese ball, not good thing. And I think, unfortunately, a little bit of the marketing of that original production leaned into that, really. Like, I remember seeing like a TV ad where it was like, you know, Kelly O'Hara, like moving aside a white gingham curtain on was what was clearly like a soundstage and like Stephen Pasquale is right outside the window. Like they really played into the sort of like, oh, it's a small town romance, you know. And I think that turned as many people off as there would be people who would just want to see it because of their love of the novel. Like I, I think that is a sort of like double-edged sword really because this show is so not that it is so like raw and gorgeous and layered and complex in the, in the love stories that they are portraying. And it's so real and sexy and like all of these things that like make it the opposite of a cheese ball kind of like greeting card thing. Um, and I just don't know when you have something like this that has a, a pre-existing, you know, reputation like that, part of your job is kind of to like tell people that it is not that, you know? Um, and that's hard. I think that's hard because you don't want to turn people off who do love the source material and say like, Oh, you know, it's not what you think it is. It's not a cheesy novella about love, which is like, it is that, you know, your mom probably did love it in her book club or like whatever. And you know what I mean by that? I mean, I don't want to, I'm, I'm in a book club. Yeah. No, I am a mom. No. Like, you know, but you know what I mean? It has that sort of sense of like, like, a popular novel that everybody reads and is kind of not very good and is specifically like located in a very like sexist kind of like, you know, it's a, it's a woman book or whatever, which you, we hear about a lot too, which yeah. I also need to get into, but like there is that kind of garbage that perception that anything that is especially appealing to women is like less, um, quant you know, it's just the quality of it is probably less. Yeah, it's weird because I don't feel like the movie has that perception of being like a tawdry summer. Or not, I just didn't even say tawdry, but like it's not like it is a, you know, cheesy. it's not cheesy. I don't think it has a reputation as being cheesy or cheese ball. Like it's Clint Eastwood directing and Meryl Streep. And I think, yeah, like even some of the reviews of the movie kind of talk about how strong an adaptation it is because it does manage to make the material like uh, there's a sophistication about it and it's not like it is long and drawn out it, it or too choppy like it does a nice job of like not of, of the pacing and not feeling like it is just a hot you know just a hot romance novel but that there is a little bit more um depth and understanding to these characters and their relationship and the connection that they have so it's interesting to me that the that in the the marketing I and or just the general kind of feeling about the show um that was portrayed like I it seems like they did kind of go for mm -hmm. go for that and and trying to probably you know they want all those women who you know read it in book club to come out and see it and that's the, probably the demo they were trying to hit but actually in doing that you kind of turn off that demo yeah. in a weird way and like and and give yourself a little bit of a, a a problem just you know in perception which is not not ideal like i i do wonder like in some of the other like would the show be more successful literally if it just played today like if we if it yeah it was it like before it's time quote unquote or like is it a timing thing 
or was it a marketing thing or a combination of that plus the production plus different, you know, who knows, but yeah, um, it's an interesting, it's an interesting challenge. Cause I, I think even for theaters as they produce it now, like that has to be something like you contend with as you talk about marketing the show and talking about it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. Yeah, for sure. Because it is, I mean, undeniably it is about love and romance and totally. an affair that is had. And, and like, you know, I was reading some of the reviews of the novella and like, you know, I think Roger Ebert had something about how like the, the notion that like a, a, a virile handsome man is going to come to your kitchen yeah. and, you know, <laughs> and like take you away from your humdrum life as a housewife is sort of like, um, kind of a, a bit of a trope you know like it's, yeah. it's it's interesting I mean now I'm like now I want to write a million college essays about like you know the weird sexism in, implied and all of this and like you know the idea that that like the, there's there is this weird like thread of sexism about a story that feels like it is that the perception in it is more appealing to women but yeah it's like it, it's a it's a complicated thing that I think the original production did not manage to avoid yeah and that will bring us to our favorite things. These are a few of my favorite things. Where we talk about some of our favorite things about the Bridges of Madison County. So, Annika, who is your favorite character in the Bridges of Madison County? But, no, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> it, I mean, uh, uh, Francesca. I, you know, I, my temptation was to say, Francesca, I actually, this is so stupid. I think my favorite character is Marge. Marge is very great. And uh, also shout out to Cass Morgan, who is an underappreciated gem of the American theater, because it is impossible not to deeply love Cass Morgan whenever she is on stage. And I like, she was so so good in that original production, but but there's yes. also I, I just because and I, I want to know why you say Francesca and not um and not Robert or or whoever but us but for Marge like I do think that moment where she comes in and she's made a lasagna and she's going to help cover it after she was so so kind of gung ho yeah. about like judging her for what she thought was going on and not really knowing and all that I think is deeply I, I do what a deeply fascinating and beautiful moment that like. I think is really beautiful and does kind of illustrate to me enough of the community theme that they wanted to yeah. impress upon that, like, and that like, you're never, you're never alone in yeah. a good way too in Iowa. Right. Like that whole thing. So I, I think that moment is quite, is quite beautiful. Yes. And I totally agree that like, if that character were kind of the only thing you got of that, like you, and, and that's kind of what you get now without that sort of floating ensemble, that's that is really all you need. And I also love that, like, it kind of illustrates that, like, clearly the most exciting thing happening in Marge's life right. is like looking out her window and like wondering why there's a truck in her neighbor's driveway. Like it kind of illustrates as much as it also illustrates that, like, people know what's going on in other people's lives in this community. The kind of like lack of anything that happens where it's like this is big news. You well, know, maybe I, there's someone new in town who's maybe staying over at that house, like drama. Right, so, and yeah, it's all literally like, you know, I don't think we ever, I don't think I ever talked about this on the podcast, but in early day shutdown, when we were first starting to record this podcast, I had neighbors that would like fight all the time. And I lived to listen to their fights through the door. Cause there was like, this is like March 22. Like, this is like 
early days. And like, there is something about that, like, that I think we all relate to. It's like, and then, you know, she wants to know, uh, she also wants to know about it. Like she got to live out her fantasy in a certain way. And so I think there's something really interesting to me about Marge, but so why Francesca, why not Robert? Well, I, that was my, that was my lengthy debate in that moment because I really love them both and I love them together. Um, and I mean, Robert's just such a dreamboat um, in so many ways. So now I'm like, now I'm like, oh, is it Francesca? Is it not Robert? But I do feel like um, Francesca is so much the heart of this show. And I think they paint such a really beautiful portrait of someone who doesn't really necessarily even know her own capacity like I I think she's someone who's sort of written herself off in many ways and I think you see a lot of it in that um to build a home the sort of like the the reality of like living in a world that is so destroyed that she just will do whatever she can to just get out and like just getting out is its own kind of victory and then um doesn't really actively question that choice all that often you know that like the that in many ways as much as i love robert and i love the details of like him traveling around with that guitar and like you know the the sweetness of him there's something about what kind of blooms with francesca just being seen by someone you know being with someone who understands her for the first time in her life like as much as i do wish there was more as we talked about earlier about like you know getting her to the end of that story like there is some part of it i understand about like that is so powerful this little touch of that is enough to just kind of like give her entire life a different take you know and this artist that she is and these these elements of of her life i just feel like it's a beautiful portrait of of a complicated woman who doesn't really know how complicated she is. I find her to be such a compelling and her backstory to be far more compelling than his backstory. I think yeah, like in the adaptation, like they absolutely want to center her. And I think it's right. I, I don't question, I don't question that for one instant. I think it's exactly right. Um, but her backstory and and her kind of thing, I just think is far more compelling and rich than, yeah. than what they offer him in a lot of ways. I wish he were a bit more interesting for me um like i'm not totally sold on his entire backstory in life and maybe it's just the the opportunities for staging that exist within everything that she talks about and witnesses about her her past like he doesn't really get the same treatment so it Mm -hmm. might be about that but i i agree with for me francesca would be a runner-up because i i think it's a great and like just listening to kelly o'hara sing all of those songs and the just depth that she brings vocally just that yeah, she yeah. just like her soul seems to like fall out it's so so good yeah yeah and that i mean that whole song she has about like someone see you know like how different it yeah. is when you just have this like one little moment and then you can go and like are having this wonderful day because like you know like this is something is un- unlocked and yeah i think you're right about him i mean i think the tricky thing about him is that you know, she gets, she has to build a home. She has the family. So we, we get to see who she is outside of this relationship a little bit with her, with him. We really don't except for these kind of glimpses that he has of like, you know, I think the, um, uh, the song that his ex-wife sings about him and this idea that like, he's always kind of like apart, you know, Mm -hmm. like he's never really there fully. And like, 
is interesting because that's not what we see of him when he comes because he's so instantly sort of like connects with Francesca. And even when he says like, I almost got in this car and left away and like, I don't, I don't do this ever. Like it's dramaturgically tricky because you have someone who is acting differently than they usually act in Mm -hmm. the entirety of the show, but you have to understand, you have to make the audience understand that they don't, that they are different. That this is, he doesn't do this all the time. He isn't just having affairs with like Iowa housewives. So, so it is, it is a, a, a tricky thing that Challenge. I'm not sure they totally give. Yeah, yeah. Um, because the portrait that we get of him is a little bit different. And so what is your favorite song in the oh. wonderful score that is Bridges of Madison County? I know, truly an embarrassment. Which also, Bridges. side note, while we're talking about the score, so we did a little bit of research. So as a quick count, there are four other best score winners at the Tonys who were not nominated for Best Musical. One of them is the original Gigi. Adaptation back in the 70s, tough. Uh, Elton John and Tim Rice's Aida, which I could not believe was not nominated for Best Musical, but it wasn't. Um, Street Scene back in 1947, because there was not an award for Best Musical at that point. So it doesn't really count. And then the recent Christmas Carol, which was a play and uh, won Best Score. So anyway, a quick, a quick, um, quick update update there. But so what is your favorite song in in the Tony Award winning score of Bridges of Madison County? I mean, this is truly, truly an embarrassment of riches. It is a stellar, 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 stellar score. There are many songs I love very much. I feel bad not including them on my top there, but I have to give it to It All Fades Away because I just literally, like, this song, I would listen to it on the subway and cry. Like, it just is just beautiful. I mean, I say that only, like, I would listen to it wherever and cry. It's just especially noticeable when something is making you cry on the subway. subway. sure. Because you feel like people are looking at you like, and you want to be like, I'm listening to the Bridges of Madison County, the musical. Leave me alone. I've said it once um, to say it. I'll say it again. You're not a real New Yorker until you're like weeping on the subway and don't care what other people. You're like, yeah, I'm probably oh, yeah. get over it. Like that's the moment. Yeah. <laughs> you're a true New Yorker. Slice of life, people. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I just, that song is glorious and just makes me feel all the feelings. And especially like at the end of the show, in this moment when this character knows that like it is the end of his life, like sweet lord jeebus i understand why they had a problem finding something that could like not top that but match it totally totally what about you what's your favorite song you gotta love a million miles i mean come on i know you and i are come on i know that was the other one that i was like oh no no." you know i didn't really know that song before before um my friendship with you because we were putting together that cabaret for um max and celeste when we were both working at goodspeed and uh you were like, we gotta do something. <laughs> we gotta do something from Bridges. Basically, like Max, please sing something from Bridges. Celeste, please sing something from Bridges. Um, and so they did it, and it was such a great song. It's such yeah. a great song, and like, oh god, I get it stuck in my head a lot. Close runner up is to build a home. I think to build a home is is really really a wonderful song. Um, yeah, that I've become yeah. recently obsessed with. But that gets to my that actually gets to my favorite miscellaneous thing because it's inside that song. So yeah. you get to you get to you give your miscellaneous thing and then I'll I'll do my my best imitation of Annika Chapin um going inside a song for a fun little fun little nugget. Oh great. Well I have I have two very uh on brand for myself. Um one of them, since we're just hopping all over each other's here, um I'm gonna one of mine is is within a million miles, which is that it kills me dead when he starts that song and it is a cappella. Mm-hmm. I think 
I think there is something about that that is so gorgeous and and shows his vulnerability so much that in this moment where he's like making himself like admitting to this and doing a thing that he has not allowed himself to do that he doesn't have any support at all it's just him putting it all out there basically with nothing um behind him i think that is so gorgeous and and just draws you right in and makes you feel all the feelings even on top of the feelings you're already feeling which is a lot of feelings i i did say i wept a lot on the show and this is one of the moments so that's one of mine um the other one i will say is um you know this is this is i think an underappreciated song because it's not like obviously the big emotional thing but some of the lyrics in i mean the lyrics in this show are are very very good very very good all over the place but home before you know it has some of my favorite lyrics especially the verse um th this lyric just makes me laugh every time you know there's room for you to come although i take it back there's not <laughs> you know we got the cow we got the kids and then the tent which i forgot we better get out on the road before the trailer gets too hot i think like it's so perfectly situated. Like that's just the scansion of that is perfect, but there's something that captures just that like bud and also that zone of like, just trying to get out the door and like, Oh, you know, there's room for you to come. Although you know what? There isn't like <laughs> there's all <of> this. <laughs> and the fact that that's like, you know, it, they place it, he places it on the line where it's like, you know, you know, it goes up on the sort of thing, you know, there's room for you to come. Although I take it back. There's not, it's just like immediately collapses in on itself. And it's so clever and fun and sweet. And I just, I, I love that moment very much. And I love those lyrics very much. And so um, that's my second one. I love it. And there's a million more, but you know what? We can't, can't fit it all into our Can't fit it all life. in. Yes. So what about you? What's your, what's your song analysis moment? Also, so, I love the, all, we're like, we're loving on this score so much. I, mean, I also like this great, book a great deal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, she, and, and like, I, I have some like, you know, dialogue things. I'm like, eh, people don't really speak like that, but you know, whatever. Uh, that's in the hyper. I think it's because I want it to be hyper realistic on a certain level because there is so much specificity and so much of what it is that like when it, when it doesn't rise to that level of specificity, I get a little like, uh, come on. Um, so that's, that's a personal thing. The opening stands of to build a home. I, I, and just, and all of her, like the cello and her like musical theme that he like developed and, and whatnot, I think is, is so great, but knowing that, which we touched on, I touched on this in the earlier segment, but knowing that he composed a lot of the show on guitar, um, becomes really apparent to me. I I'm obsessed with the fact that it's all like, it's all cello and all very like you know, classical and melodic until like, this is Albany, this is Buffalo, this is Cleveland, this is Chicago station where the truck will take them. And uh, where a truck will take them deeper into Iowa, get chills and the guitar strum on Iowa, I think, and like it all opens up, I think is the most stunning talk about to me, like music that perfectly illustrates and like gets to the core of something like it just opens the entire thing up to me in a way that I think is so stunning and so beautiful. And like, I, I, it's, I, I just, I think it's a stunning musical moment. I absolutely love it into Iowa and like that, like, you know, and it's Iowa, like we're, you know, it's not, it's not, not to speak ill of Iowa. It's, it's just a Midwestern state. It's, it's like any other Midwestern state in a lot of ways. Um, don't tell that to caucus goers, but you know, like it's not that. And yet like they, 
he manages through the score and and the descriptions and things to turn it into an exotic beautiful place for yeah. for her and for and these people and i think i think it's really really fantastic so that's my that's my little song analysis moment is that guitar strum just says so much about like where we're gonna go and what this is gonna be yeah yeah i mean the orchestrations in the show are like any one of these songs you could just you know open up and piece apart and see like there's it's just worlds upon worlds it's it's just the top it's just musical theater writing in the in the top of its form it's like the best the best it can be is really the score is amazing and if they didn't give it a tony for that then i would have just rioted and that will bring us to our penultimate segment corner of the sky gotta find my corner of the sky where we talk about this show's place in the musical theater canon. So yeah, I think it, this one's hard because it is so new. It is one of the newer shows that we've talked about. And because, as we've mentioned, it's kind of growing into itself and into its its place. I don't know that we really know its corner of the sky other than, uh, you know, a hallmark of Jason Robert Brown. And uh, I, I think, though, not a critical, you know, critical commercial success initially, I think absolutely cements him as a a serious and um leading voice of musical theater composition and um writing certainly um and you know kind of reminds everyone that Marsha Norman knows what she's doing um <laughs> when she's doing a musical um so i think in that way it's probably it's probably it's uh corner of the sky um and you know i i'm not sure beyond that like i i don't know what else it will be but um for for now, at least that that seems to be its its corner, at least as far as I can tell. But Annika, what about you? What do you think it's its what do you think it's its place? Well, I mean, personally, I feel like it is one of the shows that I mean, the word that I keep thinking of is like intimacy, you know, like it it, it is one of the best musical portraits of love and lust and romance i think that exists um so for me i think that that is where it's going to kind of claim its little corner um just being this like romantic but romantic in like a real way not in a romantic like a capital r like all the all the stuff that goes along with that like this really beautiful piece that is all about this in a way that really is is gorgeous so that's that's what i think you know it does i think it raises the bar on that front well that wraps up for our deep dive into the bridges of madison county but first annika has to give us a clue about what comes next what comes next so annika what is our clue for the next show we will be getting to know when when the director of this show was interviewing with the producers to do this show they pitched a second act that involved a commercial oasis in the middle of the desert that did not end up being in the show i uh believe also in this pitch session or in another meeting with these uh producers producer producers uh this creative director also wanted to go on a research trip 
and uh, to the to the location where this story takes place. And the producer allegedly uh, tossed a copy of a VHS <laughs> across the desk and said, "This is all the research you need." <laughs> and oh how wrong that producer was <laughs> i was gonna say I, how wrong they were but... in the first teaser i am i think the producer was right to say no in the second <laughs> teaser i think they were wrong. wrong and um yeah so that was that's a fun it's a fun little ditty yeah yeah we'll have some fun talking about this one i think it'll be interesting i have a feeling audiences will be familiar with this property uh, i think so i think so yeah Maybe. we'll yeah. see We'll, we'll see. see. It'll be an, it's a, it's an, a first for the for the program. It will be a first for the program. That is a it is a monumental step. It is. So that's all we got. We'll see you next time. Bye everyone. Bye everyone. Bye.